God and our Father, Lord, we do indeed thank you again that you're a God who has spoken through all ages and still speak today. Oh, your word is the most profound truth there is, real truth. And so, Lord, as we are gathered around it now, I pray that you'd help me to, as it were, enunciate that truth. And Lord, you'd help each one of us here and online and later to truly hear it, to be changed, to be encouraged, if necessary, dear Lord, to be rebuked, that we might see you, we might lift up your name and know you and rejoice together as one, and that today we might leave here changed for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Chapel Street. Good morning to the folks online and those that will listen uh, to the podcast later on, especially our friends in America. Thank you for listening, for your encouragement. Um, it's good to be back. I love coming back to church. Uh, you all know that. You love it too, don't you? Good. And we're back in Luke and we're almost there. I think there are just two more messages after today's message. We're nearly at the end of Luke. We might well pop back into it as we move forward after that, but there's going to be some new uh, teaching that comes along for different books, which I think is going to be super exciting. But we're almost there, and we finally get to the crucifixion narrative in Luke. Surely the most important part of Luke, <laughs> surely the most important part of all the Gospels, indeed the most important part of all of Scripture. In one sense, all of the cumulative history, planning, and design, and effect of God's work culminates in the cross. Think about it for a second. Just pause and reflect. We learn from Scripture that this was going to happen since before the foundation of the world. Creation. Sin, the fall, death, Noah, Abraham, Israel, think of the history, go into slavery in Egypt. The Lord visits them, redeems them from that land. Passover, calling out by the Passover, the blood of the lamb over the door into called out into the exodus, into the wilderness. The law is given. They promised the promised land from the covenant that was given to Abraham. Eventually they get there. They establish Jerusalem. And the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, becomes building. God gives them kings. Fall away from God and they come back to God and they fall away and they come back to God. And eventually he takes them into exile. But there's a remnant. He brings a remnant back. Anybody read Nehemiah or Ezra? They rebuild the walls, they open the scrolls and they read the word again. They rebuild the temple. And eventually they have false kings ruling. Eventually, the Romans invade and take control. And that's when Jesus 
incarnate God enters the world. All of that history culminates in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It all points towards him. As we run through this today, remember the significance of this. It's not just an idea. God, Jesus Christ, incarnate God on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. It's all here. It's all finding its fulfillment. And if you will, there are more prophecies that are being fulfilled in this page than anywhere else in Scripture, aren't they? This is what it's about. The prophecies are coming true here, now. In fact, as we heard that uh, psalm, read, that uh, text read, Psalm 22 is right there in the middle of it. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, that prophetic witness towards Christ and his crucifixion. Right in the middle of this crucifixion narrative, Luke records for us a little dialogue between two men and Jesus. Quite odd. Just put it in. He, he heard it and spoke to the eyewitnesses that were there. He gathered together and he wrote it down for us. It's an interesting dialogue. And that's what I want us to focus on today. The dialogue between these two criminals and this one innocent saviour in the middle. The Lord has set it up so. It's good to focus as a church on the cross. We do that every weekly, don't we? We do that every week. We see the Lord Jesus on the cross. Many churches today don't do that. Many churches don't proclaim the gospel. You know, I actually went to a Christian school, Ditchin Park School. I was there for many years, one of its finest students. And that is about as true as any lie. But it was a Christian school. And every day we had assemblies. And I was trying to work it out. Yesterday, I think I went to more than a thousand school assemblies in the time that I was at school. And it's like a mini church service. I'm sure that some of the older members of us here experience that. Maybe some of the younger ones do as well. There'd be prayers, there'd be songs, there'd be praise, there'd be Bible readings, and there'd be a message. And though in a thousand messages from that Christian school, I'm not dobbing them in, I never once heard the gospel. I never once heard the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ being proclaimed about how you may be saved. saved. And if you follow Peter, how you must be saved. Never once. I can remember some of the other messages. I can remember there was one about tennis. I can remember there was one about athletics. And there were plenty about working hard at school, about being a good citizen. But there was no proclamation of the gospel. And it's the same with many churches today. Now, some churches preach the gospel, but they only kind of preach it in a passing way and make a mild reference to it. There's no call in a gospel like that. And some churches deliberately leave out very important aspects of the gospel of Christ. The idea, we call it penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that Christ was dying for the sins of the world to appease a holy father who was full of wrath, and that people may be saved through that. In our place, he died. Churches dispensed, a number of churches have dispensed with that today. But you know, some churches that do really proclaim the gospel forget one aspect 
And that is how to come to Christ. It's not just hearing the gospel. It's responding to it. The call of Christ is on your heart. You have to respond to it. Sometimes I feel that we need to know how to tell people to respond. So guess what? That's what we're going to look at today. How to respond to the truth of the gospel. There are only two responses, aren't there, in reality? What are they? You can either accept or reject. There's nothing in the middle. There's no fence to sit on. There's no I'll wait and see. You're either rejecting Christ or you're accepting him. It's exactly what is happening on the cross with these two criminals either side, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have two thieves. It's kind of like a, a perfect picture in a way, the innocent lamb and these two criminals on either side. And one chooses the way of the world that leads to damnation. And the other chooses the way of the kingdom. And that leads to salvation. One is a picture of hatred and anger with God. And the other, it's a picture of fear, and contrition before the Holy God. So let's go through that passage. It's only a few verses. Open your Bibles if you have them. And we'll just look at it together. I want the word to touch you and affect you. Don't just listen to what I'm saying. Let the word speak to you itself too. Let's look a little bit at the first thief. There's not a lot to say about him. And then we'll look at the second one and then we'll consider the response. So thief one, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Rail. Jesus. He's caught. He's a criminal. He's being condemned. And he railed at Jesus. The Greek word for rail. Blasphemeo. No prizes for guessing what that means. To speak with evil against God. And that's exactly what he does. He rails and speaks with evil against God. Why? Because he's been caught. Because his sin is on display. That's what the cross is partly about. You see the sinner hanging on a cross. He's been found out. He's been condemned and he doesn't want it. He doesn't want death. That's why he says, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. Save yourself from what? Save us from what? Oh, it's death. I want to go on living. I want to go on living. I don't want to die. Save us. Save us. That's the kind of salvation this man is looking for. Sounds a little bit like the world in a way today. The world wants to celebrate living now. In fact, it wants to live it to the extreme such that maybe it denies what's coming. Death is coming, isn't it? Statistically proven, one out of every one dies, right? Unless the Lord returns. And it sounds like the world. That's what the world wants to believe. That God will somehow just forgive. That my sin doesn't really matter. I can live any way I want. What we see in this thief is 
no fear of God. What we see in this thief, there's no respect for who he is, his holiness, no understanding really of what he will do because he's focused on his life. I don't want to die. Give me this earthly life back. Don't judge me. Give me this earth. I've got more living to do. If you are the Christ, do this for me. And that's it. That's all we have on that first thief. Blaspheming, railing against God. Let's have a little look at thief number two. Because this thief gives us a different picture. And I want you to notice that there are four things that this thief recognizes that we all need to recognize. The first thing is, this thief recognizes that fearing God is the right response to condemnation. Verse 40, he says to the other thief, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. Because fearing God should be the right response to condemnation, shouldn't it? You should be afraid. Something's coming. It's called judgment. In fact, the word condemnation is two Latin words put together. Con, which means with, and damnation. Did you know that? The judgment comes with damnation. So the right response should be to fear God. It makes sense, doesn't it, to fear God? And yet this man doesn't. And so the other one points that out to him. The Lord says himself in Matthew, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. The right response to condemnation is to fear God. Told very clearly in Ephesians that without Christ we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, all living under the wrath of God, the condemnation that's coming. And the right response to that is to be afraid. It is. Fear God. And the second gift a thief gets it. He understands it. Don't ask me how he sees something of what's going. And so his response, I guess, is to fear God. Are you not afraid? You're about to be condemned. The second thing that the thief recognizes is that condemnation is actually the fair reward for sin. Have a look at verse 40 again. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. He's saying we're being condemned fairly because we're criminals and we've been found out and the law is real and we are being judged. Condemnation is the fair reward of sin and death is the fair result of sin, no matter whether we like it or not. The Bible is really clear on this subject. Let me test you. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, says Paul, just as sin came into the world through one man, who was that? Adam. 
just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. There's no getting out of it. The wages of sin is death. Proverbs 14, 12, one for Anita. There is a way that seems right to a man. It's the world. Oh, this seems right to me. I'll do what I want. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Hebrews 9 says it's appointed for man to die once and then to be judged. And to recognize that condemnation from God is a just and fair reward for sin. You can't deny it. And this thief seems to get it. In fact, there's an irony in here. We might better call it a paradox. That the biggest evidence of this truth that sin gives rise to judgment and death is happening right then in their midst, isn't it? Jesus Christ is dying for the sin of the world. The spotless, sinless one is being judged because sin is real. It matters to God. It's not a made-up event. So the thief recognizes the condemnation is fair as a reward to sin. The third thing he recognizes is that Jesus isn't to be condemned, shouldn't be condemned. He recognizes that Jesus is innocent. Verse 41, he says, We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, referring to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. Literally, Jesus doesn't deserve the judgment. Because there's no judgment when there's no sin. There's no death when there's no sin. So why is this innocent one being judged? You might say, why is he being condemned, Sam? Why should he be condemned? Being a substitutionary atonement is simply the truth that Christ has to be in our place and become sin for us to be judged in our place so that we can be let go, free, not judged, declared righteous. The Bible says it like this. He, referring to Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We know it. It's the gospel, isn't it? It's the gospel, pure gospel. This man seems to get it. This man on the cross is innocent. We're rightly being judged. We deserve condemnation, but this person, he's innocent. Why is he dying? He understood something. And lastly, he recognizes something else. It's beautiful. This thief recognizes that Jesus isn't just innocent. He's a king. He's a king. Did you see it in the scripture? He's a king. And he's a king that's living. Verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, if you have a kingdom, if a kingdom belongs to you, you're the king. That's it. 
that's how it works. <laughs> and this man recognizes that Jesus is a king. Only a little while earlier, Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And the Lord Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> if it were of this world, everyone would try and stop me being crucified. But the people in my kingdom, they love me. <laughs> this world doesn't, it hates me, blasphemes against me. Sadly, Pilate didn't get it. And somehow this thief, in the last hours of his life, sees that Jesus is going into his kingdom. He recognizes that he's a king. The other thing he recognizes, even though he's dying, he's going to his kingdom. He recognizes that somehow this man, Jesus, who is innocent, isn't going to die. I mean, he's going to die physically, but somehow he's going to live in his kingdom. You know what that's called? Faith. Something is awakening in this man's heart, isn't it? Can you picture him on the cross? Nailed to the cross is a common criminal next to the one who is innocent, beginning to see who Jesus is, beginning to understand that he's truly innocent. That Jesus is going to live in his kingdom. That's faith. That's faith. It's awakening in him, believing something about the life that Christ is going to have after this death in the kingdom. And it fascinates me that he's just able to see that. The other guy's blaspheming. This guy's able to see it, the faith awakening in the actual gospel, right? the actual event. Can you picture that? It's actually happening. And we're seeing one man rail against him and the other man start to see who Christ is and believe in him. And that's almost all of the conversation. This thief recognizes that Hearing God is right when it comes to condemnation. He recognizes that condemnation is right and fair under God's holy law as a reward for sin. And he recognizes that Jesus is innocent and he recognizes that Jesus is a king who is going to live after this death. It doesn't end there, though. And that's why the gospel proclamation mustn't end there. I confess to you, many times I've told the gospel and not asked someone to respond, not said to them, do you understand these things? How do you respond to them? I've just left it hanging. I feel that that's wrong. I feel that scripture here tells us something different. Very profound. I'll just walk us through this steadily. Jump back again to verse 42. I tripped over this word deliberately. And he, the second thief, said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. What an unusual and odd thing to say. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, there are different kinds of remembering, aren't there? might need to remember to get to work on time or remember to come home for dinner at a particular time. That's a kind of remembering. 
We're going to do some remembering in a minute, right over here for communion. It's another kind of remembering. When Anzac Day comes around, we remember those that have sacrificed their lives for our freedom. You ever visit a grave? You're trying to, in some way, remember something, to somehow connect with the past. Whenever I go to Britain, I visit my friend's grave and I am reminded and remembered, remembering what it was like to be at school with him and what kind of a person he was. That's they're one kind of, they're one set of types of remembering. But biblically, God remembering is quite different. God doesn't need to remember because he doesn't forget. But when the Bible talks about God remembering, it's accompanied with something. When God remembers, it means he acts at the same time. Through remembering, he acts. And that action is grace every time. Now, there is tons and tons of this in the Bible. And we don't have time to go through even a scant piece of it. But I'll just give you some examples that you probably know. When Noah, the flood came, Noah built the ark, and the Lord laughed at him. And the rain came, and the flood came, there was no ground. He was preserved, his family and the animals were preserved in the ark. The Bible says, God remembered Noah. The waters subsided from the earth. The reaction, God didn't forget Noah. He remembered him. He gave real hope. He said, I remember Noah. I let the waters subside from the earth. God, it says, God remembered Abraham and his nephew escaped destruction. God remembered Rachel and she bore the son who would preserve the nation. God remembered Hannah. And she bore the son who spoke to the nation. When God remembers someone, he gives them grace. He has a positive, divine, beautiful action of goodness towards them. And here, right here on the cross, this man says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not just have a nice memory of me. Remember, act kindly towards me. And right there, right then, that man's faith came to life because he became repentant and his destiny was changed forever. There on the cross, the gospel's happening. The last moments of his as Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I want you to notice just three basic things from that. Jesus says today, tomorrow, or in a thousand years, or some multiple millennia in the future, I might remember you. Today, I remember you. And so you will be with me in paradise. That's the first thing. Second thing, you're going to be with me. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember you. You can come to the kingdom. I'll give you a quiet corner at the back because let's be honest, you're a criminal, you're a thief. But you're going to be with me. 
Isn't that the best news ever? You're going to be with Jesus. Today, you will be with me. And the last word, in paradise. Now, a lot of people argue about the meaning of the word paradise. Uh, literally, the word is paradisos. Its meaning is complex. It's not a Hebrew word in terms of meaning. It's not a Greek word in terms of meaning. It's actually Persian, where the concept comes from, of paradise. And so the Jews more recently, that's to say in the last 2,000 years, have interpreted that word to mean a kind of portion of hell, a portion of Hades, to be precise that is kept for the good people, the righteous people, that on the day of resurrection will be called to be with God. That's their interpretation of that word. If you ask, if you're able to ask, I guess, what is an Iranian or Persian back then, they would tell you that the word means a garden. Isn't that beautiful? A garden. Mind you of anything? <laughs> a garden, there's safety and security and there's abundance in that garden. In the Greek understanding of it, it means the highest heaven. Today, you will be with me in paradise. This man's faith is activated in the last minutes, moments of his life when he was saved. My question to you is, within that cry, remember me. What is this man really saying? What is he saying? Remember me. Is he just saying, oh, look, you know, can I get into your, your heaven, please? You know, nonchalantly. Or is he doing something else? Well, I want you to know this. Is that man, he's begging for mercy. You might not see it in the page because we don't use the word remember me, the phrase remember me like that. But he's begging for mercy. My friend is blaspheming against you, but I am in need of salvation. I recognize you are the son of God. You are the innocent one. You shouldn't need to die. He doesn't get all the theology. He doesn't, he's not going into in-depth theology. He just begs for mercy. And listen, that's how you get saved. You get saved because there's a change in your heart and you recognize like this man that you deserve condemnation. And that this man, the innocent one, stood in your place and died for your sin. And what's your response going to be when you recognize that? Have mercy on me. Save me. Cry out. You know, in our culture, we're not good at crying out. It's not part of our other cultures are. The Jewish culture is really good at crying out. Some would say too much. They even had professional wailers at funerals. But in our culture, we're not actually that good at crying out. But I say this to all of us. If you're really in touch with how holy God is, if you're really in touch with how sinful you are, and you will cry out from the depths of you. I encourage us to do that. We need to recognize that we are truly sinful. We need to recognize that we are condemned and deserving of judgment without Christ. But at the same time, 
When we look at the cross, we need to recognize Jesus' deity, his innocence, his divinity. Otherwise, this is just lip service to an idea. And then, when we see those things, surrender. Give in. Cry out. Beg God for mercy. Think of the uh, Pharisee that goes to pray and the, he's a publican, goes to pray. The Pharisee uh, raises his hands to heaven with all this religiosity and says, thank you for not making me like this man. Attitude. And what about the sinner? What about the publican? He lowers his head. He won't even look up and ask God, begs God, cries out to God for his helpless estate in the presence of the holy God for mercy. And the Lord Jesus says, I tell you truly, this man went down to his house righteous, declared righteous, justified. Why? Because he begged God. Because his heart was honest about who God is and who he is. And this man on the cross does the same. And I encourage you, whether you're online or in this room now, to do the same. Learn to cry out to God. My greatest advice to you on this subject is to get time alone with God and consider your sin and consider his holiness. Just you and him. If that doesn't cause you to cry out, then you've missed the point. We can come to church and say great things. We can stand here and say things and sound great and religious and like we really have it together. But it's when we're on our own with God that matters. And each one of us will have to do business with God. You might say, well, Sam, I'm not blaspheming. I'm not railing against God. Well, say his amen to that. But are you saved? Are you saved? cried out, you called on him, because if you do, your life will change. Your desire to obey Christ, you may not do it very well. And when that happens, you will desire to repent. And we'll do some of that today, hopefully. Years ago, I found a, a great film. It's one of my favorite films um, of all time. It came out in 1938. So well before we were all here. It's a film called Angels with Dirty Faces. I don't know if anyone's seen that movie. I look at some of the older people here hoping they have. Doesn't look like they have. It's with James Cagney. It's a story of two friends, young men, that, that young boys that grow up together. And their, their paths diverge. They go different ways. And one becomes a, a gangster. Of course, that's James Cagney. Constantly played gangsters in his movies. And the other one becomes a pastor. And eventually in life, their, their roads meet again. And this gangster gets caught, I think for murder, if I remember correctly. And eventually he's condemned. He has the weed damnation that's coming. He's been judged by a court of law and he's going to get the electric chair. And his pastor goes to visit him in jail and encourages him, hey, turn to God. God will forgive you. Come to God. And he's so hard-hearted, this man. Refused to do that. But he might yell out is the expression. He says, I'm no chicken. I'm not afraid of the electric chair. He's blaspheming God. Just like that first thief, isn't he? 
keeps going that way. Keeps going that way. Until the final moment when he goes into that chamber of execution. And the film changes at that point. He begs for mercy. It's a fantastic movie and there's lots of subplots about whether it's real and so on. He begs for mercy. But that's what we've got to be like. Because we're going to the electric chair. We might not call it electric. It's death. It's the rewards of sin. It's the result of our nature and the things that we've done. And so we have this opportunity. We're not on a cross in a moment about to die. We have this opportunity between now and that day to repent, to come to Christ, to see him, to savor him, to know him, to live a life worthy of the calling by which he will call you into his kingdom, to be with him. Do you want to love him? Do you? Go after Jesus. Seek him out. Find him while he may be found. And we'll end with this. Lord Jesus has just spoken in Matthew to the disciples about his death and resurrection. And sadly, as happened so often prior to the, the crucifixion, the disciples just don't get it. What are you talking about? You're not going to let that happen to you. And then the Lord says this to his disciples. Listen, guys, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. It's surrender, isn't it? Deny yourself. You want to follow Jesus? Cry out. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Where are you going? I always say this. Where are you going if you to take up your cross? You're going to death. You're going to, that's the cross. That's the idea that he's saying. If you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. Who's that? That's the first thief. Save us. I only want you in that I am able to continue living in this life. Save us. Whoever would save his life, in the end, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my name's sake and the gospel shall save it, shall find it. One of our employees is a huge fan of a man called Elon Musk. He's a very big businessman in, in the world of cars and batteries and Twitter and all sorts of things. And he was enjoying telling me just how rich he was. And I said to him, what happens next in this text? I said to him, you know, the Lord Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now, Elon Musk, like anyone else who doesn't know Christ, will go to the grave, condemned, guilty, discharged. And I saw an interview with him recently where he said they were asking him, the Christian group, they were asking him whether he likes Jesus or not, trying to find out whether he's a Christian. And this is what he said. If Jesus wants to save people, I won't stand in his way. What a conceited thing to say. What a terrible thing to say. If Jesus wants to save people, I'm not going to stand in his way. You won't stand in his way. You won't stand in his way because he died for the sin of the world. Listen, Chapel Street, I 
beg you to learn. I've been so challenged in my own life in a, the closet of my little study to try and learn to cry out to God, to try and learn to really see the innocence of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ. Try and really see how much of a sinner I am. Okay, to encourage you to do that, to live your life in honor of your king, to recognize that one day you're going to be with him. Follow Jesus, cry out to Jesus, and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, Lord, again, I just want to thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God who has always wanted to speak and continues to speak through your word today. And Lord, as we've listened and seen something of your crucifixion, I pray that each one of us would recognize which thief we might be. Which man on the cross beside Christ we are, ones that are blaspheming or ones that are broken and contrite and humble and desiring to be saved, knowing that we can only come to you for that. Lord, if there be anyone here or online or later that hears this message, I pray you would be gracious and remember them. And Father, we praise you. We thank you for remembering us. In Jesus' name.